Anchor School of Theology. You are pioneers because this is our first class. That's amazing. So someday you'll be able to say, we were at the first anchor class. <laughs> now, uh, today we are going to begin our study at principle number seven. You should be on page 19 of your syllabus. And I'm going to read the principle, and then we are going to take a look at um, this principle, which is very, very important in the study of Bible prophecy. The principle reads like this. What was literal and local in the Old Testament with literal Israel is spiritual and global in the age of the Holy Spirit with spiritual Israel. Do you understand that principle? It is a vital principle. And if you read Lewis Weir's book, The Certainty of the Third Angel's Message, this principle comes forth time and again, time and again because it's a very important principle in the study of Bible prophecy. The first thing that we want to take a look at is the fact that the reason why the Jewish nation of Christ's day rejected Jesus is because they had a rigid literalism, and this hid the identity of the Messiah. There are several indications in the Gospels that show that they literalized everything and they missed the deep spiritual significance of the literal things of their religion. They saw only the literal, but they did not see the spiritual meaning behind that which was literal. In Matthew chapter 23, if you go with me there, Matthew chapter 23 and verses 23 to 28 we find Jesus expressing this idea that the Jews had of emphasizing the external. Beginning with verse 23, Jesus is speaking here to the scribes and Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. In other words, you need to externally tithe, but it has to be with the correct spiritual motivation. Verse 24, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Did they have an outside-inside problem? They most certainly did. The outside was emphasized, but the inside did not square with the outside. 
In other words, they had outward forms and ceremonies, but they did not understand the inner meaning of these ceremonies and these observances. There are several examples that we find in the Gospels of this. You have the case of Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, this um, great Jewish member of the Sanhedrin? Uh, Jesus said, you must be born again. And what did Nicodemus think? He says to Jesus, how can I get into my mother's womb again and be born again? He literalized what Jesus was saying. Jesus was speaking about spiritual birth. He was not speaking about literal birth, but, they, but Nicodemus took the words of Jesus literally. Jesus also said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. How did they understand that declaration of Jesus? They said, listen, this temple has been building, has been built for years, and you say that you can destroy it, and you can raise it up in three days? But Jesus was not speaking about the literal temple. He was speaking about what? He was speaking about the temple of His body. He was giving a deeply spiritual significance to the temple. We also have evidences in the Gospels that the Jews were expecting literal Elijah to come. And that's the reason why John the Baptist, when he was asked if he was Elijah, he said, no, I am not Elijah. Jesus said that he was Elijah. Of course, he was not Elijah literally. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah. In other words, John the Baptist was a spiritual Elijah. He was not a literal Elijah. But the Jews were expecting literal Elijah to come. And Jesus explained, no, this is one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah. But they believed that Elijah was going to come in person. They missed the deep spiritual significance. Jesus once said that we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That's in John chapter 6. Well, the Jews immediately said, this man is guilty of recommending cannibalism. We cannot eat someone's flesh and drink someone's blood. That is blasphemy. But Jesus explained Later on, he says, the flesh doesn't profit anything. The words that I speak, they are spirit and they are life. His flesh represented the word. But they understood what Jesus was saying literally. The Jews believed that Jesus, that the Messiah was going to occupy a literal throne in Jerusalem. And he was going to be like David. He was going to sit on the throne. He was going to destroy all of the literal enemies of Israel. And he was going to put literal Israel at the apex of the world. But what they didn't realize is that Jesus came at his first coming to be a spiritual king. A spiritual king of a spiritual kingdom. And you, you find all of the texts in here in your syllabus that illustrate this point. They expected the Messiah to rule literally in literal Jerusalem from a literal throne. But Jesus came to be a spiritual king and to establish his spiritual kingdom. Well, the Jews believed that literal circumcision guaranteed salvation. In fact, if you were circumcised, you were a member of the inner circle. But if you read several texts in the New Testament, like Romans 2 verses 28 and 29, 
The Apostle Paul says, hey, literal circumcision in itself means nothing. He says that is simply an outward observance that shows that God wants to circumcise your heart spiritually. He wants you to be converted. But they understood circumcision only as a literal rite. They did not understand it as a deeply spiritual observance that God had given them. And then you have the issue of the little, literal phylacteries. You say, what are those phylactery things? Well, Matthew 23, verse 5, speaks about these phylacteries. And Ellen White, in Desire of Ages 6, 12, and 6, 13, explains how the Jews used their phylacteries. Basically, they were small little boxes where they would put a little parchment inside the box with a scripture. And then they would stick these little boxes with the scripture on their forehead and on their right hand. Because in Deuteronomy it says that you're supposed to take God's words and you're supposed to put them on your forehead and on your right hand. What they didn't realize is that the phylacteries had a very deeply spiritual significance. It was no good to paste these scriptures on your forehead and on your hand. The spiritual meaning was that these scriptures should be in your mind, inside, and that they should affect your behavior, which is represented by your right hand. In other words, they totally missed the spiritual significance of their religion. And therefore, when Jesus came, they were not ready to receive him. Every institution of Judaism pointed forward to some spiritual function of Jesus. But the Jews could only see the literal lamb, the literal water, literal altars, literal incense, literal garments, literal veils. Their entire religion was superficial and external. And when Jesus attempted to show the deep spiritual significance of their religion, they rejected him. Now this is something very interesting. Roman Catholicism is a refined system of Judaism where mere forms take the place of spiritual realities. One finds in the Roman Catholic churches holy water, literal altars, literal priests, literal vestments, literal candles, literal incense, literal images, a little, literal interpretation of prophecy, literal thrones, a literal sword, and they believe that they partake of the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, Roman Catholicism is a continuation of Judaism, as if Jesus had not come. That's amazing. A Christian system that really in practice rejects Christ and exalts Forms of religion, external forms of religion. Regarding the rigid literalism of the Jewish leaders and the disciples of Jesus, Ellen White explained, Desire of Ages, page 391, they cared not for the mysterious spiritual kingdom of which he spoke. What kind of kingdom did Jesus speak about? Spiritual, spiritual kingdom. In Desire of Ages, page 670, Ellen White explains about his disciples, the disciples of Jesus. 
the disciples did not understand the spiritual nature of Christ's kingdom, though he had so often explained it to them. So basically, folks, this principle tells us that what was literal has a spiritual significance today. Now, let's pursue this by examining several examples from Scripture on how the literal actually points to the spiritual. It's not that we reject the literal. The literal is the foundation. It's the basis for the spiritual interpretation. If you didn't have the literal, you wouldn't be able to have a spiritual application of what is literal. So the literal is important, but the meaning of the literal in its spiritual sense is what is very important. Now, you received a material on uh, the robe. And uh, you can read that, if you haven't, at your leisure. But what I want us to notice is what the Bible means by garments. This is a good illustration of this principle of the literal representing the spiritual. Now, in the Garden of Eden, were Adam and Eve covered with a literal robe? Yes, they were. Their robe was composed of literal light. Correct? They were literally covered with light. That was their robe. What did that robe represent spiritually? The spirit of prophecy. If you read the material, the spirit of prophecy says it represented their righteousness. They were obedient and righteous and holy. In other words, their literal robe was light. The spiritual meaning was righteousness. Now, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned, what did they lose first? They lost their righteousness first. They first lost their spiritual robe. And what happened when they lost their spiritual robe? They lost their what? They lost their literal robe. Are you understanding the point? So the literal and the spiritual need to be understood Together, but if you miss the spiritual, you're missing the lesson that God is trying to teach. So, when Adam and Eve sinned, they had spiritual nakedness, and therefore, they became literally naked. Are you following me or not? Spiritual nakedness, losing the spiritual robe, led to physical nakedness. Now, here comes an interesting point. How did Jesus hang on the cross? He hung naked on the cross, folks. That has deep spiritual significance. Why did Jesus hang naked, physically naked on the cross? Because he was bearing our spiritual nakedness. He was bearing our transgression of the law. Who should have hung on that cross naked? We should have hung on that cross naked. Because we have sinned, we lost our spiritual robe, and therefore we should have hung there literally naked. But Jesus, on the cross, took our nakedness physically as well as spiritually because He took our sins upon Himself. Now, what happens when I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord? What does He do? You know the text. He covers me with His robe of righteousness. 
Is that a literal robe or a spiritual robe? I don't see anyone here garbed with a robe of light. It is a spiritual robe. He gives us the spiritual robe of righteousness, and when will He give us the literal robe of light? He will give us the literal robe of light when Jesus comes in power and glory at the second coming, and then what existed in the beginning will exist again. You see how the spiritual and the literal dovetail with one another? But if you only emphasize the literal, you miss the whole point of what God is trying to teach. Now let's continue this list here because we have several examples of this principle that what is literal really is symbolic of what is spiritual. Let's take, for example, a new creation. Um, do we believe that someday, soon, Jesus is going to come to this earth, then we're going to go to heaven for a thousand years, then He's going to bring us back to this earth, and He's going to make a new creation? Absolutely. But you know what's interesting? Right now, you can be a new creation. The new creation can be now. Not literally, but spiritually. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. It says there, in a very well-known verse, 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. So spiritually, we can be a new creation. But we know that literally, it's going to happen when? It's going to happen in the future, as there was a new creation at the very beginning with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Let me ask you, when Jesus comes, is He going to give us everlasting life? But you know you can have everlasting life now? You say, but wait a minute. Do you know a lot of people who had an everlasting life that died? So if they had everlasting life, how could they die? Well, what they have is the guarantee of everlasting life. Spiritually, they have everlasting life. Jesus said, though he may die, yet shall he live. Now, let's notice that in 1 John 5, you can have eternal life right now, if you have Jesus, but we will actually receive it literally when Jesus comes. Are you understanding the principle? 1 John chapter 5, and verses 11 and 12. It says there, in a oh, very well-known uh, passage, and this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life. That God has what? Has given us eternal life. And this, this life is in His Son. He who has the Son will have life. Ah, thank you very much. Has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Can you have eternal life now? Yes, but notice what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 6, verse 22. Romans chapter 6 and verse 22, the Apostle Paul uh, says something a little bit different. It's not contradictory. We can have, spiritually, we can have eternal life now, and later we will actually receive eternal life physically. It says there in Romans 6, verse 22, But now, having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness, and at the end, everlasting life. So when do we have everlasting life? Now or later? 
now and later. We can have the guarantee spiritually now if we are in Christ. But we'll actually literally receive it only when Jesus comes. Are you following me? Now how about the manna? Can we eat manna now? We can? I want to know where that bakery is. <laughs> can we eat manna? Of course we can. Who is the manna? Jesus. And we, how do we eat the manna? We eat the manna by partaking of the Word of God. So we can eat manna now. But let me ask you, are we going to eat literal manna in the future? Ah, absolutely. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17 tells us that. I'm not going to read it. Uh, you can read it at your leisure. But it says that God's people are going to eat the manna in the kingdom come. The spiritual will join with the literal. See, things, when Jesus comes, things will become literal again. So at the beginning, you have manna, which is literal. Today, it represents a spiritual reality, and in the future, it will be literal. In fact, we're going to notice that when Jesus comes to take us with Him, the literal and the spiritual will meet again. See, now we have the spiritual, but then when Jesus comes, the spiritual and the literal will meet once again, like the garments in the Garden of Eden. Let me ask you, can we eat from the tree of life even now? You better believe we can. You say, now wait a minute. Well, let's read. Eight Testimonies, page 288. I love this statement from Ellen White. She says there, uh, once again, Eight Testimonies, 288. After the entrance of sin, the heavenly husbandman transplanted the tree of life to the paradise above. So the tree of life that was in Eden is in heaven, the literal tree of life, right? But its branches hang over the wall to the lower world. <laughs> it's beautiful. Through the redemption purchased by the blood of Christ, we may still eat of its life-giving fruit. When we get to heaven and on the new earth, will we be able to literally eat from the tree of life? Yes, what is spiritual now will then be what? Will then be literal. Are you understanding the principle? Yes. Now, in the Old Testament you had a literal temple. Right? With uh, literal stones, I'm talking about the temple that was built by Solomon, literal stones, literal foundations, literal chief cornerstone, you had uh, everything literal in it. What is the temple today? The temple today is not a literal temple, it is a spiritual temple. So, so those who say that the literal temple is going to be rebuilt in the Middle East, they're saying that the literal takes place before Jesus comes. No, 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 no. We will enter the literal temple in the future. But that temple that was literal in the Old Testament today is what? Spiritual. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 20 to 22. And I hope you read all of these texts that I have in parentheses. Because uh, I'm only reading sample verses. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 20 to 22. There the Apostle Paul tells us what is represented by the temple. And this is what he says. And let's begin at verse 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built 
on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What are the foundations of this temple? Are their people, right? Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone. A person is the chief cornerstone. And then we are built up on the foundation. It says, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And then it says in verse 22 that the Shekinah that dwells in the temple, which is the church, is the Holy Spirit. Can you see the Holy Spirit? Is the Shekinah visible? No. Was the Shekinah visible in the Old Testament? Will the Shekinah be visible in the future? Yes. And those who literalize the prophecies today, futurists, and they speak about prophecy being fulfilled in a literal temple with a literal antichrist sitting there and building up a literal image, they are simply violating this principle that says that the temple is spiritual now and we will only have the literal temple when Jesus comes and that temple will not be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, it will be the temple in the new Jerusalem. Now let's notice that Jerusalem is also spiritual. Was there a literal Jerusalem in the Old Testament? Yes. There certainly was. Uh, is there a literal Jerusalem in heaven? But what is Jerusalem now? Jerusalem today is a symbol of God's people. And where are God's people? All over the world. So Jerusalem is worldwide. This is a vital principle. Because what is being taught by futurism is that, uh, you know, uh, Jerusalem, the temple is going to be rebuilt, and then the enemies are going to come to attack literal Jerusalem. But when you understand that Jerusalem today is spiritual, and Jerusalem is worldwide, are you following me or not? Then, what is the attack against Jerusalem? It's not in the Middle East. It's an attack against God's true people all over the world. Because Jesus said that where, where two or three are gathered together in His name, there is the Shekinah. The temple is spiritual and Jerusalem is spiritual. And by the way, you can read in Hebrews 12, 22-24, it says that those believers in Christ have come to Jerusalem. Not will come, have come to Jerusalem. Because we are citizens of Jerusalem. You see, our citizenship is in heaven. So even though we live here, our citizenship is there. So it is as if we are there. We are spiritually there. Let me ask you, can we drink from the river of life today? Absolutely. Volume 7 of the Testimonies, page 152. Ellen White says, the editors of our periodicals, the teachers in our schools, the presidents of our conferences, all need to drink of the pure streams of the river of the water of life. How interesting. Are we going to literally drink from the river of life in the future? Yeah, it's going to be literal H2O, and it's actually going to taste like water. We don't have any idea. We talk about sweet water. Come on. We don't know what water tastes like until we drink from that river that flows from the throne of God, as the hymn says. And so can we drink the water from the river of life even today? Yes, we can. Spiritually. Will we drink literally in the future? Absolutely. Did Adam and Eve drink from the river of life in the Garden of Eden? Literally. They most certainly did.
Now here comes another point. Jesus died literally. He was buried literally. And he resurrected literally. Now do you know, how, know what happens when I am baptized? What happens when I'm baptized? I die. I am buried. And I resurrect. How do I die and am I buried and do I resurrect? Spiritually. And folks, as Adventists, I don't think that we have understood really the full meaning of what baptism is. You see, we believe that baptism is our death to sin, and it's our burial, and it's our resurrection. To a certain point that's true, but it's much deeper than that. Let me explain how it happens. The only type of baptism that is acceptable to God is baptism by immersion. And uh, the number one reason is because the Bible says that, but the significance, the spiritual significance of baptism can only be true if you have baptism by immersion. Let me explain the reason why. You've all seen baptisms. The candidate is in the baptistry. The pastor is facing the congregation. The pastor raises his hand and says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. What does the person do immediately before he or she is put under the water? They stop breathing. They better do it. <laughs> they stop breathing. What do they do while they're under the water? They don't breathe. What is the first thing they do when they come out of the water? <sighs> they breathe again. What do you have in baptism? You have... You are repeating the experience of Christ. Because Christ on the cross breathed his last. He was buried, and then he breathed it in when he resurrected. Do you know what happens at baptism? At baptism, when a person is baptized, they are included in what Christ did. The death of Christ counts as his death or her death. The burial of Christ counts as his death or her death. And the resurrection of Christ counts as his death or her death. In other words, we are included in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. God looks at us in Him. Isn't that wonderful? In other words, it's, I'm, not buying, I'm not dying my own little vicarious death. My death doesn't have any value. It's His death. I'm being included in His death, according to Romans 6. And God looks at me, dead, buried, and resurrected in Jesus Christ. Wow. Now, what, uh, is there also a little ap literal application to this? What if I should die before Jesus comes? I breathed my last. I was buried. And Jesus is going to resurrect me. So what is spiritual now, if I should die in the future, is literal. Are you following me? Now, let's notice a few other things here. Can we be spiritually resurrected? We certainly can. Go with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse 24. John chapter 5 and verse 24. Here Jesus had something very interesting to say. It says there, Most assuredly I say to you, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me 
has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Whoever has accepted Jesus has passed from what? Has passed from death to life. But I want you to notice in the same chapter, verses 28 and 29, Jesus recognizes that people are still going to die physically. It says there, Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. So, is it possible to be spiritually alive now and if we die, to be literally alive later? Absolutely. Spiritual resurrection now when we are in Christ. Literal resurrection later. How about spiritual birth? Can we be born spiritually now? Of course we can be born spiritually. You remember the conversation of Jesus with Nicodemus. He says you have to be born again. Nicodemus, you know, the literalizer, a good uh, member of the Sanhedrin, uh, says to Jesus, now wait a minute. How can I get into my mother's womb again and be born again? Jesus says, no, you don't understand. You have to be born of the water and of the Spirit. In other words, you have to be spiritually born. And then if you die, you will be literally born when you come forth from the grave, when you come forth from the tomb. Let me ask you, can we be spiritually seated with Christ in heavenly places? This is the amazing thing. Can we enter the, can we enter the sanctuary now? Amen. Really? So what kind of, what kind of uh, you have to go to NASA to be able to do that? You know, how, how can we, how is it possible that we can be seated with Christ right now and that we can enter the sanctuary right now? Well, let's read it in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. Here the Apostle Paul doesn't say that we will sit. He says we are seated with Christ. It says there in uh, the book of Ephesians chapter 1 and verse, what did I say? Verse 3, uh, the following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. How? In Christ. Notice chapter 2 and verse 6. Chapter 2 and verse 6, after speaking about our spiritual resurrection, it says, And raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If we have accepted Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are seated with Him in heaven, even though we are on earth. Isn't that good news? That's wonderful news. But, you know, we will be seated literally in the future. Notice Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21. We find there that this sitting with Jesus has a future dimension, literal dimension. It says there in Revelation 3 verse 21, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. Is there a time in the future when we will be able to literally sit with Jesus on His throne? Absolutely. But we can be seated there now in Him. Because He is our representative. He is our advocate. We are in Him. If we were baptized, we are in Him. 
His death, burial, and resurrection is ours. He is our representative. He is our intercessor. And so we are seated with Him now. Now, is Jesus with us on this earth now? What did Jesus say? And lo, I am with you always, even until the close of probation. No. He says, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age, or the end of the world. But where is Jesus physically? Jesus is physically in heaven, but He is spiritually here. That's why His temple on earth is spiritual. That's why Jerusalem is spiritual. That's why all of these symbols are spiritual. Because now we live in the spiritual dispensation. But the spiritual things when Jesus comes will become literal. Are you understanding the principle? When you apply this to prophecy, it, be, it becomes an eye-opening experience. Suddenly prophecy becomes deeply spiritual and deeply meaningful. Now can we approach the throne of God boldly by faith? We can certainly approach the throne of God boldly. It says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 14 through 16 that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and say, how can we do that? Now do you know what's interesting? As you look at the sanctuary, the sanctuary was a tent. Israel could watch what happened in the court because it only had a fence around it. But they could not watch what was happening in the building. How did they know then what the priest was doing in the holy place and what the high priest was doing in the most holy place. Even in the Old Testament, they had to follow the work of the priests and of the high priest by faith. That's why God gave them a description of the sanctuary. The reason why He gave them a description of the sanctuary was so that even though they had never been in there to see it with their physical eyes, they, they could follow what the priest was doing in the sanctuary because of what was written in the scriptures. So even in the Old Testament, the people could not literally go in and see what the priest was doing. They had to follow the priest by faith. How can we enter the heavenly sanctuary? We enter the heavenly sanctuary in the same way. It's hidden from our eyes. You see, the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus all happened on earth. In other words, in the heavenly sanctuary there is no court because the court represents Christ's earthly work. And so we can't see what is happening in the heavenly sanctuary right now, but we can follow it by faith. We can, in other words, spiritually our mind can be there with what Jesus is doing. And then someday we will literally be able to enter the temple. According to Revelation chapter 7, it says God's people will serve Him in His temple day and night. Can we taste the powers of the world to come even now? Absolutely. Notice Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. We can taste the powers of the world to come even now in the world that we live in. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4 makes this interesting statement. And actually, let's begin reading with verse 1. It says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of the eternal judgment. 
and this we will do if God permits. In other words, we need to go beyond the basics, beyond the ABCs, is what he's saying. Verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, uh, is it possible to taste the heavenly gift even now? Yes. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, and have tasted the heavenly gift, and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good, good word of God, and the powers of the age to come. We can even taste the powers of the age to come, according to Scripture. Now, we're all acquainted with that uh, text in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, and verses 9 and 10. We usually apply this to, um, you know, to when Jesus comes and we go to heaven, there are things that eye has not seen nor ear heard that Jesus has prepared for us when we go to heaven. But within its context, it's talking about things that we can see even here. See, we can see the things that God is preparing for us even here. Let's notice that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. 2 Corinthians 2 verses 9 and 10. This is a very well-known passage. It says, uh, for this end, uh, let's see, is this the right reference? It's 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Okay, now we're on track. It says there, but as it is written, Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man, the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. Now, can we see those things now? Yes. <laughs> Let's read the next verse. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So can we see those things even now? We can see those things now through the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God. Now we will literally see heaven when Jesus comes, but we can spiritually see it now. Is the kingdom of Jesus with us even now? You can read Mark 1 verse 15, he says that Jesus says, The kingdom of God has come to you. And in fact, he said in Luke 17, 20 and 21, The kingdom of God is within you. You see, the kingdom of God has to be within us before we can be in the literal kingdom of God. Because we have to be converted first. But then in the future, there is a kingdom of glory and we will literally enter the kingdom of glory according to Luke 22 and verse 30. So the things that are in heaven are literal, but have spiritual reflections on earth. The bottom line is that in the future, the spiritual and the literal will what? Will meet. Jesus is spiritually with us now, according to Scripture. But someday we shall see His face. Face to face with Christ my Savior, as it says in the well-known hymn. So what we experience spiritually now will be experienced literally later in the kingdom. Now let's notice the next paragraph because the next paragraph uh, has some very important information in the study of Bible prophecy. Christ is in the literal heavenly sanctuary, in the literal New Jerusalem, literally 
and personally. And you have some references there. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, and Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. Is the heavenly sanctuary literal? Is there a real sanctuary up there? You know, we have scholars in our midst that say that there's no real sanctuary in heaven. Ellen White begs to differ. She makes it very clear that there is a literal sanctuary in heaven. A real one. You say, well, why do you need a sanctuary? Jesus is the sanctuary. Well, because you have the literal and the spiritual together. <laughs> so Jesus is the meaning of the sanctuary. He is there, but the literal sanctuary is there along with Him. Because in heaven, the literal and the spiritual meet. Are you understanding the principle? Now, let me ask you what's more real. What is more real? The substance or the shadow? <laughs> what's more? Okay, I'm outside. I'm standing in the sun. And my body is projecting a shadow. What is more real? The shadow or me? I am. I would hope so. Because I'm not a shadow. Let me ask you, can you walk through my shadow? Can you walk through me? So what is more concrete, the shadow or me? I am more concrete. You cannot have a shadow without a reality that projects the shadow. And the heavenly sanctuary is the reality and what we have on earth, the church and the foundations and the cornerstone are what? Are the shadow. Now, you know what happens when the sun is directly overhead? The shadow disappears. So when Jesus comes, the shadow will meet the reality. And they will be together in the kingdom. And so Christ is in the literal heavenly sanctuary, in the literal New Jerusalem, literally and personally. We have a high priest up there. But he is also present in the earthly temple. And what is the earthly temple? The church. And he is present here spiritually and what? And universally. So on earth, the temple is worldwide. On earth, Jerusalem is worldwide. So the final battle is going to be what? Worldwide. And you know, it's interesting, somebody like Dave Hunt, who has a lot of good points in his books. He's a futurist. Died in the wool futurist. But he has some, some points that might lead me to think that someday he might see the light. I hope so. But he says, you know, Babylon, uh, in his book, Global Peace, he says, Babylon is a global apostate religious system at the end of time. But he says, Jerusalem is a little city in the Middle East. It's a contradiction. Because Babylon is the enemy of Israel. And if Babylon is global, then God's people must also be global. You can't say Babylon is, is symbolic, but Israel is literal. Because you're being inconsistent in the principles of interpretation that you apply. Now we continue here. The Holy Land today is where Jesus is. Are you agreed? And Jesus is in the earthly temple, 
universally and spiritually. Thus the temple on earth is worldwide, while the temple, heavenly temple, is local in the New Jerusalem. Jesus is in two places at the same time. He is present in heaven, because He went there to prepare a place for us, and He is also present where? He is also present on earth. And you know what Roman Catholicism does? They reverse this. And this is the worst blasphemy of all. Let me explain the reason why. Where is the visible representative of the church today? Not according to Catholicism, but according to the Bible. The visible representative of, the of, of God's church is in heaven. Where is the invisible representative? On earth. Christ through the Holy Spirit. The Roman Catholic Church reverses it. And they say the visible representative where is where? On earth. And the invisible one is where? In heaven. So basically what they're, what they're committing is blasphemy because there is only one individual who is the representative of the church, visible and invisible, and that is Jesus Christ. Now let's go to the next paragraph. We can also be in two places at the same time. Is that true? Yes. Uh, before, before finishing this paragraph, let, let me express the principle. Jesus is in heaven physically and personally, but on earth he is in a book written. Because this is totally about Jesus. So in heaven he's there personally, but on earth he's in a book. We are personally on earth, but in, heavenly we, in heaven we are in a book. <laughs> right? Do you know that God in heaven has an exact transcript of what we are? Nothing missing. Our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, our works, our, our intentions, our motivations, uh, you know, our th everything, our words, everything is there. There's another Steve Bohr in heaven in written form. And God has a purpose in that. You see, if I should die someday, what happens, to, what happens to all of my memories? What happens to my brain? It disintegrates. But God keeps a backup. <laughs> and I like to think that maybe it's a, an electronic backup. <laughs> see, in biblical times they use books because that's what they knew. You know, if, they, if, if John spoke about computers, they, what's that? Ellen White used photography. She says, we're being photographed in heaven. <laughs> because photography existed in her day. Today, uh, I'm sure that God would say, we are being computerized in heaven. And by the way, God has a whole record of the whole history of the human race. And we will see it during the thousand years. In fact, after the thousand years, the wicked and the devil and his angel will see. Ellen White says, in panoramic view, the whole history of the world will be shown with each life in its fullness. Amazing. What kind of tech? How many gigabytes are you talking about here? <laughs> you know, we brag, we say, oh, man has done so much. Man has done nothing. We only reflect a little droplet of what God has. And so, Jesus is in heaven personally, but on earth he's in a book.
We are on earth personally, but in heaven we are written in books. Now, let's go back here. We can also be in two places at the same time. We are here on earth personally and literally, but we can enter the heavenly sanctuary spiritually by faith. Colossians 2, 12 and 13 informs us that we have already, right now, been translated into Christ's kingdom. Let's read that. Colossians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. We've already been translated, folks. Spiritually. We've been translated to heaven. Colossians chapter 2, and verses 12 and 13. It says there, Buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead, and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made us alive together with Him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to His cross. Now I want you to notice, particularly what verse 13 says. It says, And you being dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made what? Alive together with Him. So are we alive together with Jesus Christ? Even today? Absolutely. Even now, as we noticed in Ephesians 1 verse 3, and Ephesians 2 verses 5 and 6, we are even now seated with Christ in heavenly places. But we also, according to Revelation 3 verse 21, we will be seated with Christ literally in heavenly places when Jesus comes. Does this have, an important, uh, does this have importance when it comes to the study of Bible prophecy? Yes. Are we to expect the fulfillment of Bible prophecy in the Middle East? In a rebuilt Jewish temple? In literal Jerusalem? with literal sacrifices being offered, with literal enemies coming to the Chinese and the Russians and the Arabs coming against the Jews. It totally distracts you from the true fulfillment of Bible prophecy and from the global systems that will be involved in persecuting God's people in the end time and the deep spiritual issues that will be involved. See, it's not about literal oil. It's not about the, the, the blood that you have. It's not about your last name. It's not about your ethnicity. The final battle has, is a spiritual battle. It's very real, but it's spiritual, and it deals with spiritual issues. It does not deal with material issues such as oil and you know whether you're a Jew or you're not a Jew, or where you live or what nationality you have. All of those are distractions. Bible prophecy will be fulfilled globally with a global people of God who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. On the other side will be those who perhaps profess the name of Christ but really are not spiritually with Him. And they will despise the commandments of God, particularly the Holy Sabbath. And they will practice false worship. They will worship the image of the beast. And of course, the image of the beast represents the union of church and state. It's a reflection of what the papacy is. 
the papacy by its very nature is a union of church and state. That is its nature. In fact the word papacy is not talking about the Roman Catholic Church as a church, it's talking about the Roman Catholic Church as an as a amalgamation of church and state. That's what papacy means. So in 1798 the Catholic Church didn't disappear, what disappeared was the papacy because the union of the state with the church was severed, and so there was no longer any papacy, although there was still the Roman Catholic Church. Are you following with me? And so folks, the issues at the end of time are deeply spiritual issues, and the Bible tells us who the dangerous powers are. But those who are looking to the Middle East, to a literal place, are going to be deceived, because they're going to be looking to where the conflict isn't. Instead of looking at Rome, and looking at the United States, which is pointed out in Bible prophecy, they will be looking to the Middle East, to a literal Antichrist, a literal image, a literal tattoo in the forehead, and meanwhile things will be fulfilled spiritually and they will not see that things are being fulfilled because they have violated this very important principle of literal, spiritual, and literal. Is this clear? This is one of the most important principles that we need to understand in order to comprehend Bible prophecy. In our next session together, we are going to take a look at the story of the flood, which I hope that you filled out the spaces because it will go a lot, a lot better if you filled out the spaces. We'll see that that is a typological story that illustrates what we've been talking about. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.